Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast for people who want to apply ideas from outside software to software. Episode 43, The Offloaded Brain, Part 3, Dynamical Systems. I'm still working on an episode about applications of ecological and embodied cognition for conventional programs, what with their data structures and algorithms and input events. But I think it'd be wrong not to cover how some of what I've been calling double E's think behavior should be described, which is via dynamical systems. I'm taking the examples in this episode from Anthony Chimero's Radical Embodied Cognitive Science. One warning. I can think of no way to apply these ideas from outside software to software, so consider this episode as mostly descriptions of neat experiments. Here's Chimero's description of dynamical systems. Quote, A dynamical system is a set of quantitative variables changing continually, concurrently, and interdependently over time, in a way that can be described as some set of equations. Cognitive scientists ought to try to model intelligent behavior using a particular sort of mathematics, most often sets of differential equations. Dynamical systems theory is especially appropriate for explaining cognition as interaction with the environment because single dynamical systems can have parameters from each side of the skin." The example everyone uses of a dynamical system is Watt's centrifugal governor for steam engines, so I will too. A main use for early steam engines was pumping water out of coal mines. Power for that was delivered via a rotating flywheel. You wanted it to rotate at a steady rate, even if the workload or the temperature of the boiler changed. The speed could be controlled by a throttle. If you wanted, you could pay someone to open the throttle wider if the flywheel slowed down or do the reverse if it sped up. But it turns out that owners of coal mines preferred not to. Watt's way of doing away with an operator was clever. He attached a vertical spindle to the flywheel. Attached to it were two arms with heavy balls on their ends. The arms were attached with hinges. If the spindle wasn't turning, the arms would point straight down. But the faster the spindle spins, the more the arms raise up via centrifugal force until they could be completely horizontal. The arms are also attached to the throttle. If the spindle begins to spin more slowly, the dropping arms will open the throttle wider, and the reverse happens if the arms rise toward the horizontal. There's a screw that controls the relationship between arm angle and throttle, You fiddle with that until the governor keeps the spindle, and thus the flywheel, spinning at a constant rate. That's where Watts stopped, but 80 years later, James Clerk Maxwell published a famous paper on governors that describes the behavior of the Watts governor with two differential equations. The first describes the change of the arm angle, strictly its acceleration, based on the current arm angle and the engine speed. The second describes the change of the engine speed based on the current speed and the throttle setting, which, remember, depends on the arm angle. These two equations are coupled because a term for engine speed and a term for arm angle appear in both. I don't know if these equations have a closed-form solution or if you have to use approximations. 
In any case, you can use these equations to calculate how the system will evolve in response to perturbations of the engine speed. Once you know the value of constants like friction and the relationship between arm angle and throttle setting. In dynamical systems theory, the emphasis is on long-term qualitative behavior. Wikipedia says, quote, the focus is not on finding precise solutions to the equations defining the dynamical system, which is often hopeless, as in the case of chaotic systems, but rather to answer questions like, will the system settle down to a steady state in the long run, and if so, what are the possible steady states? A common analogy for such steady states begins with a landscape containing hills and valleys. If the system is poised at the top of a hill, not too much of a perturbation is needed to send it rolling down into the nearby valley. But once in the valley, it will stay there rather than roll back up to the top of the hill. If you consider the landscape to be a three-dimensional graph, there are two input variables, x and y, say. The height of the landscape at a given xy point is a value that the system wants, in scare quotes, to minimize. For a body, that value is often energy expended, so a valley might represent the most efficient way to make some continuous movement. Which brings us to your fingers. Assuming you're not listening to this episode while driving, hold your elbows at your side with arms horizontal, hands open, thumbs on top, and your index fingers pointing forward. Now wag the two index fingers back and forth horizontally at the same speed. I'll pause to let you do that. Unless you're well-trained in finger-wagging, you almost certainly adopted one of two patterns. Either the fingers will be in phase, going back and forth together like most windshield wipers do, or they will be entirely out of phase, both simultaneously moving toward the midline, getting the closest to the belly button at the same moment, sweeping outward together, reaching their farthest extent at the same time, then back in together. You can model fingers as, quote, non-linearly coupled oscillators. I'm guessing people decided they're coupled because, well, look at them. They naturally act in synchrony. It takes energy to maintain wagging, so that gives us something to minimize. The equation of motion for wagging fingers has a single variable, phi, which is the relative phase of the two fingers. The equation is minus a cosine phi minus b cosine 2 phi. I do not know how they came up with that. If you graph that equation, you'll get a curve with two minima. One is when the fingers are in phase, windshield wiper style. A shallower one is at the entirely out of phase wagging. That describes the observed behavior. If you temporarily achieve any other relative phase, it will quickly slide into one of the two minima. That in itself is not wildly interesting. There was some observed behavior. Some people came up with an equation that generates that behavior. Okay, but that only gets interesting if the equation can be used to predict something new and surprising. See episode 17 on Imri Lakatosh's Methodology of Scientific Research Programs. So what our researchers did was take the derivative of phi with respect to time. The new equation predicts that if you're a non-windshield wiper wagger, it will become harder to maintain that as you speed up the wagging. 
eventually you'll slip into windshield wiper mode. Moreover, quote, as the rate approaches the critical value, attempts to maintain out-of-phase performance should result in erratic fluctuations of relative phase, end quote. Your finger movements get messy as you approach the transition. This is indeed what happens. This equation glories in the name of the Hocken-Kelso-Buns model. Like any scientific model, it's subject to the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately test. What else can it predict? What about leg swinging? Does that work the same way? You won't be surprised to find that it does. More interesting is two people, each swinging their right leg. There is the same qualitative behavior. The people are in phase or out of phase, and out of phase transitions to in phase as the swinging gets faster. The model can also be extended to better capture finger wagging. It turns out that right-handed people are better at wagging their right index finger than their left. You can add a term to the basic equation. For the record, c sine phi minus 2d sine 2 phi, which better matches the data for experiments. It gets weirder. The previous examples don't seem to have much, if anything, to do with thinking. But what about this? Imagine being given a sheet of paper showing a series of interlocked gears, say four of them, connected in serial. Experimental subjects are told that the first gear is turning clockwise and asked which direction the final gear is turning. Both adults and preschoolers usually start by using their finger to go around the first gear clockwise, the second counterclockwise, the third clockwise, and the fourth counterclockwise. And so counterclockwise is the answer. After some number of trials of different numbers of gears, People catch on to just counting the gears, since odd-numbered gears always rotate in the same direction as the starting gear. I'll note that, annoyingly, when I told Dawn about this, she immediately jumped right to the trick, kind of ruining the big reveal. There's nothing weird here. People generalized from a few examples. Big deal. What's interesting is that, quote, this aha moment is preceded by a spike in system entropy. That is, the finger movements exhibit critical fluctuations, indicating that the extended system solving the problem is a non-linearly coupled dynamical system undergoing a phase transition, end quote. That is, realizing the trick is somehow something like switching from out-of-phase to in-phase finger wagging. Which is weird, but links finger-wagging to solving a reasoning problem. Hold that thought. I'll give one final example involving a different equation. Some other scientists, call them the speechifiers, modeled a speech recognition task with the equation k times x minus one-half x squared minus one-fourth x to the fourth. Yet another set of scientists call them the stickifiers, wanted to investigate this question. Suppose I show you a stick and ask you if you could reach out with it and touch some object. It's no fair to actually try it with the stick, you have to imagine. Now suppose you are writing a computer program to solve this problem, one that might be running in your brain. It's easy enough. There is a data structure representing your arm, Based on long experience, you know how long that arm is, 
and you can look it up in a field in the ARM data structure. Your eyes show your brain a stick, and the brain can estimate its length. The answer to can you touch it means adding those two lengths and comparing the sum to the estimated distance to the object, also calculated from data your eye delivers. According to that model, experimental subjects might get it wrong, but that would be solely due to mistakes in estimating lengths from visual perception. But is that the only source of error? For some reason, the stickifiers decided to apply the speechifiers equation to the stick-poking problem. I think, but Chimero doesn't say, that they were using the speechifiers equation to model sources of error. Importantly, in the k times x minus etc. etc. speechifier equation, the stickifiers decided that k wouldn't be a constant, but rather a function of history the history of sticks presented and the answers given for those sticks. They made four predictions about different sources of error, and the experimental data turned out to match those predictions. I'll only cover two related ones. Consider being asked the question multiple times. Each time you're given a stick and asked the can you touch it question. Then the stick is taken away and the trial is repeated with a new stick. All the sticks differ only in their length. I'm going to say that the lengths are 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. I don't know the actual lengths, but stick 4 is longer than stick 3, and so on. In this experiment, the stick lengths increased and then decreased, like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and then 4, 3, 2, 1. In one set of trials, the increasing sequence went from 1 to 9. Let's suppose 1, 2, 3, and 4 get a no answer, and stick 5 gets the first yes. Now suppose sticks of length 6, 7, 8, and 9 are presented. You'd predict that those would also get a yes, since they're longer than 5, and they do all the way up to the last stick on the upward slope, 9. Now, what about 8, 7, 6, etc. on the downward slope? Since stick 5 was the first yes on the way up, it should be the last yes on the way down. However, people will tend to give the first no too early. That is, they might start answering no with stick 7 rather than stick 4, even though 7 was plenty long enough the first time, and then do the same for 6, 5, 4, and all the way down to 1. The experimenters had predicted that based on the equation that involved history. Specifically, they predicted the longer the run of yeses, the more likely the subject would jump the gun and answer no too soon on the way back down. But what about a short run of yes answers? The researchers predicted that instead of saying yes too little, the subjects would on average say yes too much even after they were presented with sticks they'd said were too short on the way up, they'd say they were long enough on the way down, sort of the opposite of the earlier case. This is weird. What can we do with this information? Chimero says, in not quite these words, that if you were writing a computer program to solve these problems, you'd do it in some straightforward way. Your code wouldn't produce, quote, critical fluctuations at boundary conditions, and you wouldn't write code that, 
given a simple perception plus addition problem, dragged in the history of past judgments, past sticks. What, in our understanding of natural selection, would cause evolution to create a brain that goes to a whole lot of extra computational effort to act weirdly and inefficiently? Therefore, Chimero says, we should abandon the notion that the brain is anything like a computer. It's something very different. Not everyone, you'll be surprised to hear, agrees. As far as I can tell, there are three main objections. One, these equations are descriptions, not explanations. Why is rhythmic motion described by A, cosine, etc., etc., etc.? What we want is something more like the direct causal link between the arm angle and engine speed that you get with the Watt centrifugal governor. Put differently, how does knowing that equation help us build robots? Two, we know that evolution is somewhat slapdash. The reasoning brain could be a computer built, somewhat shakily, on earlier adaptations. Those foundations might show through in fluctuations before a phase shift, say. But that doesn't mean that the fluctuations are essential. They're just the equivalent of friction that can be avoided by using better materials, silicon. We don't have to give up on the idea of the brain as computer. By analogy, a computer chip doesn't really deal with ones and zeros, but with voltage levels that range continuously between zero and 3.3 volts, or whatever the maximum is for that chip. It probably even overshoots 3.3 a bit on the way up, a fluctuation. But we arrange things such that we don't have to think about the fundamentally analog nature of our digital devices. We treat them as if they were purely digital. And so let's do the same with the brain. And finally, what I think is most important, though least explicit. Three, we want the brain to be a computer. Why? My theory starts with the fact that, well, we die. That sucks. Especially since it's often messy, undignified, painful, and strips us of reason and language, two things that we cherish as setting us apart from animals. Actually, it's not just death. So much of living is messy, undignified, and painful. And because we humans love, love, love good, bad dichotomies, we have to have something that contrasts with the unpleasant parts of life that offers a hope of some kind of release or reprieve. A nice modern example of this need is long-termist philosopher Nick Bostrom's Letter from Utopia, imagined to be written by a distant descendant of ours to us of today. The either-or, good-bad contrast is explicit. Here's the good future. Quote, My mind is wide and deep. I have read all your libraries in the blink of an eye. What I feel is as far beyond feelings as what I think is beyond thoughts. There is beauty and joy here that you cannot fathom. It feels so good that if the sensation were translated into tears of gratitude, rivers would overflow. End quote. And here's a bit of the description of today's everyday life. Quote, the ever-falling soot of ordinary life. Always and always, 
soot, casting its pall over glamours and revelries, despoiling your epiphany, sodding up your finest collar. And once again, that familiar, numbing beat of routine rolling along its familiar tracks. End quote. To a long-termist, the brain has got to be algorithmic, else how will we upload ourselves into computers and live forever in bliss? I'm not saying that cognitive scientists are all long-termists indulging in motivated reasoning. I'm more saying that the very idea of motivated reasoning is one half of another good-bad dichotomy, reflecting the emotionally necessary existence of unmotivated reasoning, reasoning that is pure and uncontaminated, and somehow eternal or deathless, and non-messy and unemotional. We've spent literally thousands of years working out what such a kind of reason, one independent of matter, might be like. We painstakingly created formal logic, necessary and sufficient conditions for categories, seeing the world not directly, but via truth-bearing representations, decomposition of wholes into parts, rule-based computation, infinities, recursion, and parsing the difference between capital T truth and mere belief or mere argument. All that got turned into a theory of mind sometimes called computationalism. In a way, it's a clever acrobatic trick all that time building up a notion of reason on the imperfect base of our mortal selves, then finishing by saying that actually computationalism was inside us all the time. It is the essence of what we are. It's not built on top of messiness, not to the right way of thinking. Rather, the messiness is inessential, a secondary phenomenon, an epiphenomenon, as they say. What we most centrally are is independent of the, quote, implementation substrate. We are something that can be, modulo some implementation details, lifted out of bags of meat and run on something more reliable and powerful. Again, I'm not saying that cognitive scientists are transparently motivated by a fear of meat. Rather, they and their forebears, and you and I, have been soaking in this intellectual bath for thousands of years. Perhaps that's why our brains are so wrinkled. Um, the eternal over the mortal, the transcendent over the mundane, these dichotomies are the unquestioned default. Ecological and embodied cognition directly challenges our defaults. It makes the imperfect world and the ever-fragile body essential, not disposable. Cognition is about survival, not about truth. Reason isn't noble, but rather a sometimes useful hack. It messes up the pleasing picture. Something that occurred to me, time is not what you might call a first-class object in algorithms. It appears only as external events, which is why our uploaded selves will be able to read libraries in the blink of an eye, We'll be running on a substrate with a much higher clock speed and higher level parallelism than neurons can achieve. But embodied cognition puts time front and center, as in the phase shifting speeds in the Hakan Kelso Bunz model. So, what if thought turns out to be time bound? What if we can't be us at a higher clock speed? How horrible 
if our uploaded selves could do no better than an eternity of ever-falling soot and the familiar numbing beat of routine. Surely the world could not be so unfair. At some point in my reading, I realized that debates between double E's and computationalists always come down to definitions. What precisely is a representation? What precisely is computation? If two things are dynamically coupled, are they necessarily part of a single, undecomposable system? Or can we understand them individually, two parts rather than one whole? If you listen to the recent episode, Concepts Without Categories, you know what I think about such definitional arguments. We should do something else. In the tradition of this podcast, the something else, next episode, if I can get my thoughts together, will be accepting Andy Clark's ideas about how animals use representations and rules and seeing what those ideas might suggest for the design and programming of actual systems. As a teaser, Clark's approach, I think, to something like domain-driven design would be to center the ubiquitous language on verbs rather than nouns. Freestanding, ephemeral closures that capture relevant bits of a context rather than methods on classes. We shall see. Until then, thank you for listening.